When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 56.4% of households in East Germany had a fridge versus 28% in West Germany. That was the one thing that they were very pleased with. They made huge progress on that. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In 1990, a country disappeared. When the Iron Curtain fell, East Germany simply ceased to be. For over 40 years, from the ruin of the Second World War to the cusp of the new millennium, the GDR presented a radically different German identity to anything that had come before and anything that exists today. Socialist solidarity, secret police, central planning, barbed wire. This was a Germany forged on the fault lines of ideology and geopolitics. I talk with acclaimed historian Katja Hoyer, whose new book, Beyond the Wall, offers a kaleidoscopic new vision of this vanished country, beginning with the bitter experience of German Marxists exiled by Hitler to the creaking foundations of socialism in the mid-1980s, we discussed that amid oppression and frequent hardship, East Germany was yet home to a rich social and cultural landscape, a place far more dynamic than the Cold War caricature often painted by the West. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation... You'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, this is Tree from Berlin. I believe it's so important and interesting to hear these stories from that period, good and bad. Books will tell you so much, but the real-life stories from people who were there make it so real. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Katia Hoyer to our Cold War Conversation. Well, I think, first of all, a lot of the history that's already out there is very academic. It tends to focus on particular elements of the GDR. Like, so say, for example, there are lots of books about the Stasi specifically or about the wall. 
all about the way that the regime was run. Um, but there are there are very, very few overall histories of the GDR that try and capture the whole thing. So that was one of my aims. I mean, as the title suggests, I'm trying to go beyond the usual story. So normally the story is about how this is a, a country and a people that were sort of locked in by a war. Um, and then we tell the story of 40 years or 41 years of uh, suffering until they were liberated. Um, and people tend to forget that there was life going on behind that wall. And actually, the vast majority of people had no intention of leaving the country. I mean, obviously, the story of those that wanted to is important. And, and I tell that as well. But I think on top of that, there also is another story to be had about what life was actually like in the GDR beyond the wall. Most people didn't spend their day every day thinking about where they'd rather be but they just got on with their lives and that's kind of what I was what I was trying to do with this and I'm trying to do it through the voices of the people of East Germany rather than speaking about them I was speaking with them um, and trying to to have their voices heard so um, that I think is what makes the book different. Absolutely absolutely and I you know that is very apparent in the interviews I do is, is that People loved, they died, they got married, you know, that all of the, the whole range of experiences that people would have had in the West happened in, in East Germany. And I think people look at East Germany very much in hindsight and they don't look at it in the way that if you lived in East Germany, you did not know the war was going to come down in 1989. So therefore, you would live your life to the best that you could. A lot of people had very little interaction with the security forces or, or anything like like that. And I think your book is a, is a great portrayal of what that lived experience was like in East Germany. Your book starts in 1918, so that's almost 30 years before the formation of East Germany. Why Why do you start there? I think it's important to understand where the GDR came from and, and also who founded it. Um, and the people who founded it, um, particularly Walter Ulbricht and Wilhelm Pieck, who are the, the sort of key figures in that, um, have got a history that goes much longer. They didn't just suddenly spring out of the earth in 1949 and, and founded a new state. Um, but they were communists all their lives. They've grown up with certain experiences that they've had. And, and I think it was important to, to trace those experiences because obviously their own ideology um, and their own uh, kind of way of seeing the world and particularly seeing Germany is formed and shaped by the experiences such as, say, the First World War, the, the kind of street battles in the in the 1920s in the Weimar Republic. Walter Ulbricht, for example, becomes a, a communist MP in, in Parliament and, and has heated battles with Joseph Goebbels and understands kind of the power of that propaganda from the Nazis and, and is really kind of really keen to you know make sure that, that that doesn't get repeated and therefore goes over the top at the other end, you know, to try and sort of protect his little republic um, once it's formed. Um, and I think that's really, really important. Also, the fact that all of these communists then had to flee um, or go underground um, during the Nazi era from 1933, I think is important. They all come out of this this kind of first half of the, of the 20th century up to 1945 with an experience of intense like, persecution, being overprotective of themselves, being paranoid about the enemies that they have and I think that really has an impact on the GDR later so hence why I started a little bit earlier 
and trace back their steps from sort of the their own origins, if you will, to when they found this um, new state, the GDR, in 1949. I think it, it gives a great context as to their world view and and their experiences. And as you say, there's a lot of similar experiences amongst those early leaders of East Germany. So if we just fast forward a bit and. 1945, Nazi Germany is defeated. Gruppe Ulbricht arrives in what was then the Soviet occupation zone of Germany to a Germany that's been devastated and brutalized by the Soviet army. Yes, and the problem, I think, to start with, is that this uh, Gruppe Ulbricht, so this task force, effectively, that Stalin sends back to Germany to set up new structures, given that, you know, Germany has been completely destroyed, its polit- political structures have gone. It's even simple stuff like nobody's looking after sanitation, water supplies, food, all of that needs doing. Um, and, and Walter Ulbricht is among a group of 10 men who get sent back, all German communists get sent back to Germany. The problem is they they get sent back to a Germany that they don't recognise, that they weren't part of. So where most ordinary Germans, particularly civilians, have either spent the war in Germany and, and sort of, you know, being, being bombed, being brutalised by the Soviet army as it arrived, or actually being fighting if, you know, for the for the men who were um, of fighting age, were, were off kind of experiencing very terrible things at the front line and committing very ter- terrible things at the front lines. Um, and here comes Gruppe Ulbricht, who sat out the war, the war in the Soviet Union, not being part of any of that. And they basically come back to a people they no longer recognise and the country they no longer recognise, trying to set up things with them. Um, and encounter, of course, a lot of suspicion and, and hostility, given that they've, you know, sort of dodged the war at, at best, if not actually, you know, undermined it, basically, because they worked for the enemy. And that's something that a lot of Germany doesn't take lightly. So they, they come back to a fairly suspicious and hostile world where they try up new, or try and set up new structures effectively. And a lot of them, therefore, try to... Um, hide their Russian connections so the, the existence of the Gruppe Ulbricht gets denied for years. Um, it, it didn't even happen. <laughs> You've got um, the youngest member, for example, um, who later became quite a well-known historian, changing his first name. His name was Vladimir and he changes it to Wolfgang to, to sort of, you know, his mother had called him Vladimir because his mother had been a, co- um, a communist and effectively he has to change it to Wolfgang because he doesn't want to make it obvious that he spent so many years in the Soviet Union. And I think that's quite remarkable that these people sort of come back and, and even though they admire the Soviet Union for what it is and what it does, doesn't don't want to be associated with it because they are frightened what the German people might think. It's little details like that that you've got in the book that I think, you know, bring it to life because, as you say, you can find some very dry academic tomes out there that would cover... Uh, East Germany, but some of the uh, the characters that you've discovered, where you've got their personal accounts, does breathe some some real life to this. So the the next stage in sort of like the formation of of East Germany is this f- forced merger of the Socialist Party, the SPD, with the Communist Party of Germany, the KPD. 
Yeah, and that is an interesting story. So that that is normally covered by a lot of the more academic books because it's a, it's a vital step in the political history of the GDR. So you had this long, long history now of the SPD, which is some say the oldest, but certainly one of the oldest political parties in Germany and has been fighting for um, sort of social reform mostly throughout its history. And there were always, because it was such a broad church, because it was the only left-wing party before the First World War, there were always communists in there and people like uh, Walter Ulbricht, for example, the, the founding father, if you will, of the GDR, were actually in the SPD before the First World War and then changed to communism once a communist party existed uh, in the 1920s. And now two parties exist. So you basically have the SPD uh, reformed after the, the Nazis had banned it. And then you've got the new Socialist Unity Party, SED, set up as a as a kind of more left-wing socialist slash communist party against that. But they realized that basically it was the division between those left-wing factions that allowed, in part at least, allowed Hitler to come to power because they didn't, the, the KPD and the SPD were so hostile to each other that they just couldn't find it in themselves to form a coalition against the Nazis, which could have been quite effective at, at um, kind of preventing all the horrible fates that happened to the people that were in both of these parties afterwards. And so there's a really strong argument to only have one left-wing party um, there. The problem is that they they uh, ballot the parties in West, or what was then the Western sectors of Berlin, and the SPD is really not all that keen on it. <laughs> and when they realise that if they kind of just asked them and, and had a ballot, like, shall we, shall we put these two parties together? There's a very strong possibility that that isn't going to work out. And so they forced this merger, um, effectively. Nobody really knows what happened. The head of the SPD, um, Gortovol, gets summoned um to the to the soviet headquarters um and when he comes back he was quote a changed man <laughs> nobody really knows what changed his mind but suddenly the spd leader in, in the east uh, was keen and uh, the the two parties get merged into into one which then basically means you've now got all of these spd people like social democrats effectively in the SED, which causes actually quite some problems later for the SED as well because they're never entirely Keen. So when you get uprisings and things later, it's always the people that were once in the SPD who will point this out and say, well, look, actually, we're SPD people. We're not really here to, to uphold your system. Um, so this isn't as smooth as it's often portrayed. Kind of they get forced into this and now they're locked in the party. They, they still have like an internal sort of faction later on within the, SP, uh, within the SED. So 7th of October 1949, the German Democratic Republic is formed at that point is there amongst the general population a, a belief in building a different country to the west there is there significant support for the sed at this point not so much specifically for the sed but i think people underestimate the impact of Nazism and also of the First World War. There are now people around who, if you're, say, like a middle-aged person at that point, you've literally known nothing but upheaval. And in hindsight, it becomes very obvious that a lot of this upheaval was caused by Germany itself, by its militarism, by particularly by Nazism, because that was the war that was much more keenly felt 
um, at home as well, because in the First World War, of course, Germany didn't get um, occupied or bombed. Um, so everyone in Germany has had a dreadful time and is trying to this keen to avoid that again, basically, and, and to build a better Germany. Whatever that means is, of course, different for different people. But a lot of people are quite taken by the idea of building a genuinely better Germany with a better society that is fairer and, and will avoid uh, sort of the excesses that, that have been there before. And if you follow communist logic, you know, in terms of what it actually means to be a capitalist country, you basically end up with with a sort of staged system. So they believe that capitalism will automatically uh, expand because it needs more market it, in markets, it needs more resources, it constantly devours things. So therefore it needs to expand. So you end up with imperialism and imperialism in their view, because you're fighting against other peoples, um, will lead to fascism. And so if you follow that logic, there are a lot of people in Germany at this point in 1949 who believe that once you go down the capitalist free market route again, you will automatically end up with Nazism again. And for that reason, people find, some people, a lot of people found this idea quite attractive to set up a socialist state in Germany. So you get people actually moving over from the Western zones People like Bertolt Brecht, for example, um, famous sort of poet, um, left-wing poet and, and uh, theatre dramatist, who uh, actually move into the East at this point um, and try and sort of build socialism together with, with the system that's already there. That's not to say that they believe in everything that the SED does, but they believed in rebuilding Germany as a as a new place, as a different kind of Germany that hadn't existed before. And I think the other thing that's easy to forget is that socialists and social democrats had fought literally since the existence of Germany since 1871. And you could go further back, you know, in, in the history of, of communism and socialism. They dreamt of this moment for like decades, for generations. And here it was, you know, socialism would finally exist on German soil. Um, so a lot of people feel like, you know, rolling their sleeves up, rebuilding Germany and making it the best Germany that it can be. Um, and for many people, that was a socialist one. Yeah, because you, you hear this phrase, building real and existing socialism. I've heard this phrase been coined by, um, I think it's probably East German politicians that are that are, are coining this phrase. Things don't necessarily go, as you said, as smoothly as they would have expected at this point and in 1953 there's an uprising which uh, starts in berlin but spreads across to other cities in east germany yeah that's right i mean the the problem that the that the young gdr had at this point is that um they had to pay huge amounts of of reparations so in contrast to the to the First World War, this time there wasn't a fixed sum that people set, um, so they wanted to basically avoid the pitfalls of the Treaty of Versailles. So it was decided that every power could take out of their zone like what they wanted effectively. Um, could be material, could be actual money, it could be ongoing production, it could be what's already there. And the Soviets go, fine, that's, that's exactly what we'll do. So where the West gets sort of martial aid and, and support and, you know, Volkswagen being a classic example as rebuilds with, with British help, the opposite happens in the East. Um, and everything from like private looting where literally soldiers go into people's houses and just steal things um, all the way to, to systematic dismantling of 
of whole factories, train tracks get ripped out of the ground, copper cables do. You know, people people dismantle like radiators from the from the wall, not even entirely sure what they're gonna do with it, but it has to go to Russia and there's whole like train tracks going. And even in the early fifties, um so fifty, fifty one, fifty two, people still describe and I've spoken to people for my book with the, like older people who who started working around then. They were shocked to see that they were producing something. And the Soviets would literally just rock up and take whatever comes out at the end of the assembly line and take it away. You know, these people were working like virtually, you know, sort of 12, 13, 14 hours a day. And then they saw what they just produced being shipped off to the Soviet Union whilst they had very little and, and lived in kind of dilapidated housing that was half bombed still. And that was quite frustrating for, for a lot of people. And the regime responded because of the lack of things that, that they had. There was nothing on the shelves, basically. People were already working flat out, they responded by increasing the amount of working hours um, regularly without giving people more pay. So people effectively worked themselves, you know, nearly to death and weren't actually receiving more, even any adequate amount of money for it. So I've got one guy there, for instance, in the book, Heinz Just, um, who was a teenager at the time, uh, had learned a decent job and was looking forward to to actually doing the job. And instead, they put him in a in a room where he operated three machines at the same time. Uh, in a shift system with a social hours and then earn 250 marks at the end of it a month, which was just about above minimum wage, but not anywhere near enough to to have his own place to, as he said, like, I couldn't even have a girlfriend because I couldn't afford to like buy her things. Um, so people got incredibly frustrated because this was supposed to be like this new brilliant utopia where everyone is, is equal and everyone has got enough. Um, and there just wasn't enough of anything. And people had, been told that they can finally, especially the working classes, that they can finally have a really good education so that they can then have a well-paid job and all the rest of it. And none of that was coming forth. Um, And the regime's obstinacy was just incredible when you follow it sort of step by step. And at each step, the workers were saying, we need to talk to Walter Ulbricht, the leader, and work something out. And he just flat out refused to talk to them. There's this really quite astonishing scene, I describe it in the book as well, where the workers on the Stalinale of all places, so the the street in Berlin, the great big Soviet-style boulevard that had been built, was called after after Stalin. The workers march down this road onto the government buildings and demand to speak to Albrecht, and Albrecht is standing in the government building, surrounded by angry workers, still with their tools in their hands and everything. They couldn't have made a better picture of like the German working classes if they tried. You know the people that he purported to to speak for, um, and he just said to, to, to the people around him, Ulbricht, who were trying to convince him to go out and speak to the workers, oh, it's raining, they'll just disperse again, it'll be fine. And of course they didn't. Um, and, you know, and then it really erupts into a general strike on the next day, on the 17th of June, <clears throat> 1953, and uh, it ends quite quite badly, of course, being crushed by, by the Russians who basically declare a state of emergency and crush this uprising in a very bloody fashion the exact number of deaths are still um disputed but but it's in the dozens um and it basically ends very very badly uh for all sides so albrecht is in quite a sticky situation here and the workers uprising is not just the only problem he's dealing with well he's he's got lots of problems really it's not just the population it's also the fact that the sed the other sed members had told him that this was going to happen and do something about it. So they're all angry. Um, so you have, you have people like Ellie Schmidt, for example, um, who uh, bravely basically told him that, Walter, this is all your fault. This would never have happened without your obstinacy. 
And uh, later she gets expelled for the, from the party for that. But immediately he can't do that. He can't expel all of them. So he's got his own party, the the inner sort of circle of the, the Politburo against him. Um, on top of that, Stalin had died um, in early in that year, in 1953, in March. Um, and and that was basically Ulbricht's like, guarantor for power, effectively. He had Stalin's trust in East Germany and other people had long said, this man is useless, let's get rid of, let's get rid of him. And now that Stalin is gone and his own inner circle is against him, the people are against him, he's got a real problem in trying to cling on to power. So the, the Stasi is being expanded. That was set up in 1950 as, as quite a smallish undertaking still that, that was constantly being kept in check as, as the people who have founded it want to expand it. But on the flip side, he also knows that what happened effectively is people being unhappy with working conditions and with with the sort of amount of work that they have to do and, and what they get out of it. It's, it wasn't so much to try and abolish the entire state. What they were unhappy about is that in the West, you have the economic miracle at the same time. So people have got relatives in the West and find out what's going on there. And then by comparison, you've got this this kind of horrific economic situation in the GDR. And that that's what needed to change. So together with the Soviets, he works out um, a plan to basically increase living standards. Um, and suddenly, and again, there's wonderful kind of you know documentation from the time where people say suddenly all of these lorries appeared with like tinned food and potatoes and all sorts of other things, which the Soviets couldn't really afford to give away either. But they they realized that they needed to stabilize the situation in the GDR, and that was the that was the way to do it. Um, so effectively, it's kind of like a carrot and stick approach, if you will. So they they beef up the security at, at one end um, and then try and beef up the people, yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, <laughs> at the other end. Yeah, yeah. The economy of East Germany, so they've nationalised all the industries. There's also collectivization of agriculture as well. And I'm presuming that doesn't go down well with with the farmers. No, it doesn't. Um, I mean, you can't like stand there and say you are a workers and peasants state, and then basically make life very hard for both of these groups. And for for farmers, it's kind of what I was saying about ongoing production with the workers earlier. So when that gets taken away, the workers get very angry. The same is true for farming. If you don't allow farmers to have their own uh, kind of labour rewarded by the fact that what they harvest at the end of it is theirs to sell or to eat or whatever to do with because it's theirs if you take that land away um they'll be very unhappy they effectively become like farmhands you know they work on somebody else's land and then everything that they do gets gets taken away and redistributed in the way that the authorities see fit and that's of course very um, unsatisfying the other problem is that the GDR had actually um after the second world war when germany lost a lot of land in eastern europe um, 12 to 14 million Germans were expelled from that and many of them end up in the GDR and they get given land as a means of, of having an income because they've just come with nothing from Eastern Europe. Um, so a lot of these newcomers, and they make up about a fifth or so of, of East German society, it's a huge proportion, are actually now what, what they call new farmers, Neubauern. Um, so that's like their only thing that they have in this new country, well, not new country, but this new territory that they've just arrived at is their new land. This is this is the thing that gives them a new home, a new existence, a sense of belonging. And if that is taken away from them, again, that's going to make them very unhappy. So they were among the groups, farmers in particular, who tried to leave East, Germ East Germany very early on. They were part of these kind of really 
big um, uh, sort of early waves of, of people leaving um, because they wanted to to do their own thing, to have their own land. And that brings a lot of people against all Britain, against the regime. It's all part of his building socialism kind of by force program, which he, he rolls out all the time whenever he gets a chance. He sort of, um, you know, pushes ahead with that, whether it's good for the country or not. Yeah. But he's he's quite rigid in terms of following the Stalinist ideology, which, again, doesn't make him hugely popular. And I think the, the other thing to remember at this point, the Berlin Wall isn't built and the inner German border is still relatively porous in terms of being able to exit the uh, the country. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly the easiest way is to go to go through Berlin. And that's what most people did. You could literally within Berlin walk from A to B from one zone to the next on foot but without that being an issue. So there are many, many people uh, who would just travel to East Berlin, walk over into West Berlin and then and then leave into the West from there. And in West Germany, there were um, like refugee camps effectively set up for for them that would welcome them, would register them and you would immediately because West Germany effectively claimed to speak for all of Germany, so it considered East German citizens its own citizens. Um, it's a bit complicated, the question, question of citizenship, but effectively, if you were German, you were German in their eyes. Um, so it was quite easy to go over, simply give them your details, and then become a citizen there. So that was quite an attractive route that was still completely entirely legal and open, um, and they couldn't stop you from, from going. It's in these sections of the book, you get introduced to some characters. And I love the way that uh, Margot Feist first appears, who, you know, is has a better known persona and appears later on in the um, in the book. It's great. These little details of these individuals and their life and, and their stories and how they fit together. I mean, we mentioned earlier the expansion of the Stasi. It's sort of after that uprising that Albrecht and others get a bit jumpy about where they're living and think, hmm, we've seen what happened in Hungary in 1956. We perhaps need somewhere a little bit more secure. And so there's this, um, there's a little piece that you have in there about the first investigations into, you know, this new housing complex in Wandlitz. Yeah, I mean, the the uh, elite lived in Berlin and Pankow, um, which was kind of cordoned off, if you will, by the Soviets when they first moved in. as Because it's a nice part of town. There's lots of sort of, you know, grand old bourgeois type, uh, sort of nice little townhouses and things. So so they uh, basically make that a separate part of the city. Uh, it's, it's sort of walled and fenced in um, for the Soviets initially, and then the, the elite move in. So they're kind of collectively sometimes referred as the Pankow, clique or the, the panko circle by, by West German politicians because they all lived in this kind of tiny part of, of Berlin. But as you say, they felt very insecure for all of the reasons um, you just mentioned and decided they need to move outside of Berlin in case there's another uprising. And they find a nice piece of land uh, north of Berlin, um, the so-called Waldsiedlung, um, so the forest settlement um, in, in Wandlitz, um, yeah, just sort of north of Berlin. Effectively, they start commuting. Um, so they move out into the countryside and then it takes them about half an hour or so uh, when they get picked up with their chauffeurs in the morning from their houses um, to get back into Berlin every day. And that's that's what they end up doing. But this Waldseelung is quite interesting from a psychological point of view because, uh, because they were completely effectively... Uh, 
removed from society with that. So they're in the middle of nowhere in, in flat rural Brandenburg. Um, and yes, it's nice and scenic. There's a lake, there's kind of fields around and things and then a little forest and, and so on and so forth. But effectively, they're walled in. And this entire settlement is run by the Stasi. So, you know, we often think of the Stasi as a means of controlling the population, but actually Eric Mirko, who sets it up, ends up controlling the politicians as well. He runs this, the settlement. So it's his, sold, his um, soldiers and, and staff that guard it. Everybody in this Waldsiedlung was vetted by and works for the Stasi. So you got people like bakers and hairdressers and butchers. It's like a little city, not city, but a little village basically set up for them. They are all Stasi people. So guess what happens if you go, if you're like uh, the, I don't know, Ulbricht's wife, Lotte, and you go to the hairdresser in the Waldsiedlung and the hairdresser is a, is a Stasi woman and you sit there and you moan about something that happened yesterday in, in the in the last meeting of the Politburo or whatnot. Well, she wouldn't have been privy to that, but say in a political meeting. And, you know, she's immediately going to pass it on to the Stasi. So you end up with a, with a situation where Mirka knows absolutely everything about the elite as well. If they want something that isn't available in the GDR, so for example, um, pregnancy clothing kind of was, was always very hard to come by. So some of the women would like ask basically the, the Stasi, can you get that for us? And, and they'd get it into the Waldsiedlung for them. Um, that's something that, that Mirka would instantly know about. He knew what exotic fruit they liked or what, you know, what sort of hobbies they had if they had to have stuff imported for it. Um, so it, it becomes quite a claustrophobic environment that a lot of the politicians really quite dislike. Um, so many of them do say that uh, they, they actually yeah, didn't like living there because it removed them so far from ordinary life and made them subject to, to Stasi control to a point where they themselves try to escape from it sometimes. Um, so Margot Honegger, for example, famously uh, gets a driving license and then her own car because she's trying to get away from her security detail and then sort of just flees the scene when she can because she, she wants to throw off her shadow, as she calls it, um, the you know Stasi security that's constantly around them. Milka has a file on Honecker as well. He must have a file on everybody just in case he needs some uh, blackmail material. And I think Honecker is an interesting character. He's sort of he's um, in charge of the youth organization of East Germany in the early days, and he's been imprisoned the entire war. I think he's arrested in 1935 in Germany, and he's released in 45. So he spent his entire time in prison. And there is speculation that within this Milka file was some evidence of him cooperating with the Nazi authorities during this uh, prison period. I don't know whether you've found any uh, truth in that. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. 
Yeah, I don't know if uh, um, Hon- he had anything on Honecker's own uh, collaboration, but there is evidence that his father tried to bail him out because he was worried about... I mean, Honecker was still a young man at this point, and his father was deeply worried that... Yes, I mean, they were communists as well in the in the Saarland and in West Germany, really kind of working class community, quite quite radicalised politically. Mm-hmm. So it's not that his father had objections to Honecker being a communist and, and trying to sort of not be Nazified, but he was deeply worried because they'd seen what happened to the other communists um, who were all, you know, either locked up or driven out of the country or actively murdered um, or put in concentration camps. And so his father effectively wrote to the authorities and said that actually his son has now seen the error of his ways and, and he's very happy in this new Germany that Hitler set up and can you let him go? Because a lot of communists did exactly that and, and were then let go. Um, and this because they they were effectively to the Nazis, they could be reformed. It wasn't an ethical or kind of ethnical issue in, in their racist worldview. These people were still Germans, and if they could only be reformed by subjecting them to hard labor or, or you know, kind of incarcerating them for a while, then a lot of them were reintegrated into things afterwards. So that evidence, that letter, for example, is something that Mirka kept um, in a little red suitcase. It's like he couldn't make up a better kind of Cold War story. Yeah. Um, together with other evidence that he had um, uh, supposedly um, sort of funded a, a bungalow or like a chalet for one of his uh, uh, sort of lovers or girlfriends, um, you know, in terms of using um, estate money for that. So all of these sort of, things that Mirka could get hold of, he collected, in case he ever needed to. There were a lot of policies of uh, Honecker's that he was quite suspicious about, Mirka personally. Um, and so when the moment came, he would have used that to, to either help topple Honecker or prove that he wasn't um, in the same camp as he was. And Honecker is, is recognised as a really good organiser because he is in charge of the planning for the building of the Berlin Wall in 1961. So he's moving up in status within that Politburo. Yes, he is. And that's an interesting thing that both he and Ulbricht, so the, the two leaders effectively who ran the GDR for most of its existence, that's the one thing that they both had going for it is that they were they were very good organisers um, in terms of kind of large scale organisations and events. And so where what they lacked in like charisma and in, in kind of general uh, like ability uh, or ability as leaders, um, they made up for an organ- organization talent. Yeah, and the other the other reason why he was given the task is because, as you say, he was in charge of the Free German Youth, the mass mass youth organization that the vast majority of of young people, of teenagers, were in. Um, and therefore, because it was supposed to have looked as if the East German population wants this wall. Um, they felt they couldn't just police that with um, with army or with um, security personnel. They kind of needed citizens to do that. And what better way to do that than drafting the youth in to do it? Um, so you've now got young people, um, sort of 14, 15, 16-year-olds, um, in their sort of the shirts that the, the Free German Youth wore, they were quite distinctive. They were kind of this, this bright cornflower blue. Um, and they were obvious wherever they went, they were immediately recognisable. Um, and so you've got all across Berlin, uh, the Free German Youth drafted in effectively to to help quell any sort of, um, you know, disturbances or any any demonstrations or anything like that. So in in they were told to sit in bars and in pubs and on park benches and in cinema foyers and, and in all sorts of public spaces just to make their presence known. 
um, to A, create this idea that they were part of the building of the wall, but B, also to, I mean, you can't really shoot at them or anything, you know, or kind of, you know, they're, they're kids effectively. Um, so that it, it's quite a, a sort of thought through way of ensuring the visuals of this event, but also making sure that you have extra security there that is effectively a safe way to use. They were still incredibly worried about a NATO invasion that might follow the building of the of the wall, and that was one way of trying to counteract that. Um, and that's why Honecker was was partially put in charge of of this entire process. It was his organization talent, talent, but also the fact that he could summon basically the youth of East Germany to help him out. Yeah, because they were, you know, being quite clever there in trying to portray this as this is the citizenship or the population of East Germany doing this. It's not the security forces. So there's also quite large involvement from the uh, the combat group of the working classes, which is sort of like a workplace militia that uh, has been formed in in East Germany as well, and they're on the on the front line just behind the uh, barbed wire too. Yeah, and they're an interesting group, actually. I've, I've found that kind of researching them quite psychologically quite interesting because it's entirely voluntary. So nobody forced you to join like the Kampfgruppen of the Arbeiterklasse. Um, you know, so th- this is uh, one of those things where I was quite intrigued why people would do that. And I think the answer, like, I, I mean, you, do, you did get benefits for that. So if you joined it, uh, you would get better pensions, for example. Not massively, but it was like a little bonus kind of to show the appreciation of the state for that but really I think what the appeal was is a bit like um, having the cadets you know when you're younger it's like the one thing you do after work where you have a little adventure you get to roll around in the mud you get to like fire weapons and, and stuff like that and I think it's it's that thing that got most people involved in it it's the sort of idea that you're like a weekend soldier effectively um, but you, you don't you can't be drafted or anything so it's it's kind of a safe way of playing at being in the military as opposed to really being in it. Um, and some of these people were very, very ideological as well. So they, they sort of joined for for reasons of, you know, they, they genuinely thought they were doing the right thing um, and were effectively keen to get involved with the building of the, the wall. And you have those people on shift systems in Berlin as well helping out because, again, they're civilians um, and that made it safer compared to sending the actual um, army out to, to support the the building of the wall so you have these like waves of defense effectively for it and you'd have to get through an awful lot of civilians at first if if there was any kind of western comeback from that now after the, the building of the wall the east german government's belief is if they can get reasonable living conditions in the country then most people will be able to live with the wall so what is the sort of standard of living like in that sort of early 60s and into the 70s is it improving considerably at that point for the average east german yeah it is because of that belief um you know that that effectively you've we've walled people in now you've got to make it worth being in that in that place by the sort of certainly by the 1970s actually late late 60s i'd say you have reasonable living standards they're the highest in the entire communist world so it's easy to forget sometimes because people tend to sort of see you know, all of Eastern Europe and Russia, including Germany, as, as one block. Um, and yes, of course, compared to West Germany, 
it doesn't reach the same standards, but neither do like most countries in the world. I mean, West Germany has got incredibly high living standards at that point. And of course, East Germans compare themselves to that and they see what their Western relatives have. But at the same time, all the basics are in place. So nobody is like starving at this point. People have got education, subsidized rents, housing is getting better um, because they're building a lot. Um, you know, the, these kind of ugly blocks that people associate with both East Germany and, and Eastern Europe were actually quite desirable living at the time. Most people had never, ever lived in a flat that had like, you know, central heating or um, I don't know, like water, uh, even running water uh, toilets that weren't sort of halfway down the stairs or even outside, that kind of thing. So for the vast majority of people, uh, if you had, say, children and you were married, you know, you, you were given priority, you ended up with, yes, a little flat somewhere in a hideous block, but it was somewhere that you could you could live quite comfortably. Things like fridges and radios and, and those kinds of things are becoming more uh, widespread and also kind of available. Yes, expensive, very expensive compared to the normal everyday uh, products, but nonetheless more affordable for people. So by the end of the 60s, people feel like it's moving onwards. And that was a universal view that I got from pretty much everybody that I talked to, is that they really felt the the sort of mid-late 60s were a time of, of immense progress. People got obsessed with like the space age and, and technology being moved forward. And there's a real sense that Berlin is being transformed, for example, the Alexanderplatz with its, with its TV tower, all of those kinds of things work together to give people the impression that it's, it's moving forward and they're getting there. Yeah, you've got some great stats in the book. I mean, one of the ones I picked out was the fridge one, which in 1970, I think 56.4% of households in East Germany had them versus 28% in West Germany. That was the one thing that they were very pleased with. <laughs> they made huge progress on <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they were very good, very good at fridges. But uh, as far as telephones in the home, it's sort of uh, not so good. 50% West Germany, 6% East East Germany. So uh, and that never changed either. It's really interesting how, I mean, I sometimes, I'm, I'm sometimes surprised when I describe my experience of the GDR in the late 80s and the things that I remember from it. And then other people in Britain who are much, much older than me say, oh, yeah, that was my that was my childhood was like in the in the 60s. So, you know, so the, the, these things, particularly telephone, they, they never catch up with them. Yeah. You, you had most families still without a telephone in the late 80s. Absolutely. And I think that's where people forget the context is is they, they look back in hindsight, whereas the living experience in a lot of Western countries was not hugely different to uh the the lived experience in east germany i mean you know one of the stats that that stands out is around car ownership because by 1988 more than 50% of households had a car which was on a par with the uk at the same time and all you hear about car ownership in east germany from most people is oh you had to wait 10 years or whatever for a car which okay was was true for a new one but there was a lively trade in in uh secondhand ones as well and they weren't cheap to get but then neither was a car in the uk to uh buy no exactly and i think um 
you know, once again, there's a comparison, of course, to West Germany, which, you know, both like Germans are always obsessed with cars. And of course, you know, when you compare it to West Germany, you end up with with people in West Germany on average having more cars and better cars than than the than the Trabant, which most people had in, in East Germany. But nonetheless, as you say, people focus on the waiting time. So you imagine basically somebody sitting there at 18 saying, I want a car. So I'm now going to apply to have a car and I'll have it when I'm 28. Um, and then spend my entire money on it. That's not how this worked. Like, first of all, if people knew that you were going to be at 18 at some point, you apply for that car when that child's like eight, <laughs> say, you know, and eventually, you know, that's how it worked on, on the one side, or you bought a car and then, as, as a lot of people did, immediately applied for the next one. And then you knew by the time that the 10 years were over, your used car is still going to be worth probably the same amount of money you're going to pay for the new one. Um, sometimes even more you can sell that on and you get the new one so there were ways around that and these cars lasted forever as well because they were so simple Mm. um in terms of their mechanics and the way that they could be fixed quite easily so you know people knew all the tricks they carried like little toolkits around with them they looked after these cars um because they were treasured and, and people kind of um you know valued them as a as a, as a little bit of freedom, effectively, to move from A to B whenever they wanted and how they wanted to go on holiday and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I think one of, one of the other areas that people highlight about East Germany is the efforts to ensure gender equality and encourage women to try and take part at all levels of society. And the difference there between the gender balance versus uh, West Germany is is massive and it's a cause of friction with uh, unification as well yeah it really is i mean this is often brushed aside um as like a sort of you know workforce issue as if yes the gdr was always short on everything including workers um but this isn't an effort to just try and get more people to work this is people forget that this is an actual part of socialist ideology is equality in the sense that you have gender equality as well. So when even when you look at the 1920s, the first female politicians are all um, sort of you know communist and and socialist um, and SPD people as well because they there's a genuine effort, the ideological effort to make that work. By the end of the GDRs so in the 1980s, nearly every single woman is in work. So you've got work ratios of over 90 percent of women, and that's full time uh, for the vast majority of them. Um, whilst of course that isn't a ratio that we've got now, never mind, you know, at, at the time in Western countries because of, of childcare issues largely. I mean, there are of course many women who, who want to focus on being mothers, um, and, and want to stay at home. That is something that the GDR also allowed. So it isn't, as again, many people claim a case that you were kind of dragged off to a workplace, to a factory if you were trying to look after your children. That existed particularly in religious, um, contexts. So in the, in the small Catholic communities, for example, that existed. Uh, that was actually still a thing and people did that um, and it was possible to do. But the culture was changed to a point where it just became normal. Women would just grow up or girls would just grow up expecting to learn a job or, or to go to university or whatever it is that they um, that they wanted to do and then basically end up in a full-time position just as men did. And I find that really interesting as well when you look at how men and women interacted in the workplace. They, there's this sort of sense of of camaraderie of working together as as equal colleagues and yes that takes a while to set in because in the in the 50s and 60s in particular men were effectively the problem and other women um because society needed to change so there was still this kind of 
you know, expectation that you should look after your children. And if you don't, you know, you're a bad mother and all, all of the things that we still recognize today as, as kind of obstacles um, against women going to work. But it became across the time more normal. And then once the first generation of girls kind of grew up with their mothers working, so my mother, for instance, worked full time and I never even considered that, uh, and still does actually, I never considered that a, um, a, a weird thing. So you kind of grow up basically as a child, largely, you know, in, in childcare or, or going to sort of clubs and things after school, you come home with your own key when you're like six, you know, but it's just the thing that just happens. And you look after yourself, you learn how to cook your your meals and stuff and, you know, you get on with things. Um, and that's, I think, something that changed society quite a bit over time um, as well. And people forget that very different lifestyles were set up as a result of that. So how much dissent is going on in East Germany in, in the 1970s? Are there independent organisations who are questioning how the country is run? There are. It's largely in the context of church groups, um, mostly because they are, well, there are, of course, people within the churches who oppose the secularization of society and the kind of quite aggressive way in which this is done. So churches, for example, receive very money, very little state money to be rebuilt, even where they're, where they're bomb damaged and, and need rebuilding for historical reasons alone. Um, so this, and they also have the means of organizing themselves because these communities, of course, exist and there's, it's easier to organise any sort of resistance within that. They often work together with West German organisations of the same community. So if you have, say, Protestant resistance groups, they tend to forge links with West German groups of the same um, ilk and then um, organise resistance. For example, also getting people out of East Germany and into West Germany. But this is very much so limited at that point to that community. Um, so you don't find the sort of mass unhappiness and and kind of uh, a willingness to go onto the streets or to do anything amongst the, the wider population to the same degree that you saw either in 1953 or later in the 80s. And this is why I'm quite uneasy with drawing that connection as well. People tend to put 1953 and 1989 in a line and sort of say, well, look, people were unhappy then to the point where they nearly toppled the state. And that happened again in 1989. And, and you sort of just wonder what happened in the decade in between. Um, so in many ways, it does go a little bit quiet because, as I said earlier about the 1953 uprising, it was largely about um, conditions in the GDR. And if you make them livable, the vast majority of people, even when they're unhappy with things, don't want to leave the country. I mean, you've got this now. People are unhappy about I don't know, the energy crisis, not being able to, to afford their bills. Um, they, are, they don't like the government. You know, there's all sorts of things that people are unhappy about, but very few people pack their bags and go, right, fine, I'm going to live in a different country then. And I think that's sort of the situation you get in the 60s and 70s as well. There is general grumbling. Yes, people are unhappy with, with things, um, but at the same time, it isn't enough to tip things over into active uh, kind of mass resistance. And it's interesting as well that the opposition groups get quite frustrated with that. So you hear this from them saying, how can people just be happy with having a little garden and their little lives and just get on with things when there's all of this stuff like democracy and all of this kind of stuff that is wrong with the country? You know, so it's, it's hard to mobilise mass resistance when people are reasonably well fed and have got sort of lives worth living. But what, one of the little uh, stories you've got in here I loved, and I hadn't heard about this one. And th there's many in here that I hadn't heard about, but this one really tickled me was the coffee crisis. Yeah, that is interesting because Germans love coffee. I mean, this is one of those things that 
uh, denotes stability, comfort, homeliness to people. And they have a little ritual, a bit like, I suppose, you know, afternoon tea in Britain is kind of one of those things that you have to have your coffee, your coffee and kuchen in the afternoon. It's just as part of civilized life for people. And when there was a worldwide coffee crisis, actually, I should say, in the in the 70s for, for a number of reasons, and it became incredibly expensive to buy on the world market and fund. obviously coffee doesn't grow in east germany or in germany full stop so it had to be bought for hard currency on the world market and this is something that when it runs out uh people get really really unhappy about and the regime are very worried that when they do have a coffee crisis in the 70s and uh there, there isn't even you know normally people got used to the idea that there are shortages so you just ran around different shops until you found a packet of coffee somewhere. And when that became impossible and there literally was no coffee, the regime starts thinking, mm, we need to do something about it. And their first instinct is to create a sort of a Zatz coffee out of all sorts of horrible things like chicory and barley. And, and I mean, this happens in the West as well, I should say. You know, people will remember, older people often remember this horrible coffee mix that, that you could you could get. But at the same time, you know, Germans just won't have it. They just, people sit there and they, they call it like Eric's brew, you know, because of Honecker's <laughs> policies. And and it's, it's just disgusting. And so they basically set out to try and find a solution. And the solution is to find another uh, communist or socialist country um, that can grow coffee on their own soil and will then be able to trade it for other things rather than having to pay hard currency for it. And they get onto the idea that Vietnam needs help um, after the, uh, you know, the Vietnam War had only just finished 1975. Uh, the last soldiers get get drawn out. The country is in absolute tatters. So the GDR thinks to itself, mm, we can help a, a fellow brother socialist state here. But at the same time, they can they can grow coffee for us and they go over there and plant coffee plants. And it's a huge undertaking. Um you know, it's quite, it's quite a thing to do. Like coffee needs really specific conditions to grow in. Um, and so they go over there and build like entire irrigation systems and, and coffee plantations. They set up schools and things so that the communities can move entire to the regions where they could grow coffee. Uh, the problem is that coffee plants take quite a while to grow and to produce their first yield. And the first yield was due in, <laughs> in the early 1990s. And you effectively end up with the first result of this massive undertaking coming through when the GDR had already collapsed. Uh, and now Vietnam is one of the largest coffee producers in the world. It's, it's one of their key industries. Um, and so you could argue it's one of the most successful aid projects that's ever happened. <laughs> Uh, but it was too late to benefit the, the GDR and people had to continue to drink uh, either terrible coffee or wait until their kind Western relatives sent them sent them some. Oh, the irony, the irony. <laughs> it's a great story, but it sort of underlines how East Germany can't operate in isolation and neither can the other communist bloc countries amongst economic changes that are going on in the world. And for East Germany, it becomes more and more difficult to actually finance the projects and the work they're doing to try and keep the population happy. So in the early 80s, the East German government begin to realise that actually we are struggling to balance the books here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they had tried different things, like, as you say, they, they needed other countries. And so they thought they could build like a socialist uh, sort of trade community worldwide, if only the problem is that, of course, most of the socialist countries um, were themselves developing countries. And so you end up 
with not a particularly strong trade network and they were trying to do things like getting workers over and training them from those countries to try and build a stronger network. So, for example, they set up a huge cement plant in uh, in Cuba, which is still the largest in, in South and Latin America, and things like that to try and build sort of industrial economies. But, of course, again, this is a long-term project and they realised it wouldn't bail them out short-term. And so... They think they need to get money from elsewhere. The problem was that at that point, Poland was was collapsing economically and politically because of the uh, their upheavals that they had uh, with the Solidarność movement um, and, and various other um, economic issues, which itself sprang from shortages of, of food and particularly meat. Um, so the West looks at the Eastern Bloc and goes, nah, there's way too much upheaval. It's probably going to collapse very soon. Let's not invest anything. And the GDR has got a huge credibility problem in terms of securing funds and loans from somewhere. And again, this is often built up to a huge thing, but all Western countries borrow money. The difference is that they can borrow money because they, you know, the banks will basically give them money because they know they, they can get it back. You can't do that if you're a socialist country. Your fellow socialist countries are all as, as struggling as you are. So they're not going to lend you any money, not even the Soviet Union at that point. They, they kind of have their own issues to deal with in the in the 80s as well with Afghanistan and lots of other things. But you end up with not being able to borrow any money, and that is a problem. So they, they turn to West Germany, of all places, um, and say, well, look, you know you know us, we're fellow Germans, we'll, we'll pay the money back. Um, and it's interesting that of all places, <laughs> Franz Josef Strauss, who used to be the kind of the cold warrior in the West, um, a, a kind of senior politician who fulfilled lots of roles at the time, but is a, is a Bavarian, arch-Bavarian, arch-cold warrior, basically, ends up contacting Honecker and says to him, shall, shall we meet up and we can surely arrange something? Franz Josef Strauss, he's very right-wing. He's known for his right-wing views. So he's the last person who you think would want to help East Germany. No, that's absolutely right. And very, very anti-GDR as well. So there's constant sort of sniping. So for example, there's one incident where, um, and this happened a lot as well, where a man collapsed at the at the inner German border of a heart attack, not in, not in small part due to the very rough way in which East German border guards would, would handle people crossing over from the West. Um, there, there were, I think, something like 300 and something people who actually died of, of heart attacks at the inner German border. And Franz Josef Strauss, when this happens, says that they murdered him. They practically, you know, murdered him, and and is one of the people that is leading that uh, sort of propaganda charge um, against East Germany. So it, he does seem an unlikely figure, and yet um, he he does approach uh, contacts basically in the in East Germany to. Uh, try and broker a deal and out of that um out of those negotiations comes a deal of, of one billion deutschmarks what i found surprising in the book and i hadn't realized this was how honecker is having phone calls with uh helmut kohl and you've got a brilliant transcript of a, a call of them together and it's like a couple of buddies um chatting away it's it's bizarre it's bizarre um, I found that absolutely fascinating. But he eventually visits West Germany in 87. I, I always remember these photos because Cole's a big guy and Honecker's not a big guy. <laughs> and the contrast between the two is is bizarre. 
Yeah, and people were, I think, also envisioning them as almost like representations or personifications of their countries, respectively. I mean, you know, the GDR is much smaller in every category that you want to look at it um, than the than the West. Uh, but yes, I think they. This is what worried the Soviets, like throughout. Basically, I think Germans never got over the fact that there are other Germans on the other side of that divide, and no matter you know how the political differences panned out. There was still, I think, always a sense that you can speak the same language, you you kind of know what the other one's talking about, you get it. And especially with Kohl and Honecker, like Honecker was originally from the Saarland, like, you know, just a few kilometers away from where Honecker was, where Kohl was born. And there's an astonishing episode when they when they first meet, um, where basically Cole says to him, like, if we talk in dialect, nobody will understand what we're saying. We can get rid of our handlers because <laughs> they, uh, you know, their, their sort of dialects or accents were, um, if they spoke in the local dialect, were, were quite, you know, were not too far removed from one another. Um, so there, there is that. On the on the flip side, though, you know, Cole is also, I think, one of that um, mould of politicians who were, in the context of the Cold War, probably quite um, robust, if you want to call it that. You know, he belongs to that sort of group like Thatcher in Britain at the same time, Reagan in the US, um, the, the, sort of this triangle of of anti-communist um, sort of staunchness, if you will. But yet he can't, as you, as you say from the telephone transcripts and things, he can't quite get away from the fact that he wants to make relations with with East Germany better at the same time. I think they'd both reached a point at this stage, and you said at the beginning that people didn't know that the wall was going to fall in 89, and they didn't. They'd reached a point where they sort of accepted that there was going to be a different Germany at the other side of the Iron Curtain, and there, there needed to be a way of those two Germanys to be neighbours, um, trade with one another, potentially make financial deals and all the rest try and bring the other system down, which is effectively what happened earlier. Yeah, but towards the end of the the 80s, the, uh, I'll use the cliche, the winds of change are blowing. You know, solidarity has been legalised again and is moving towards elections in Poland. And the the sort of civil rights movement we were mentioning before becomes more burgeoning as people are becoming more dissatisfied with life in um, East Germany. Would that be a correct analogy? I mean, what what is triggering the the growth in the civil rights movement at the at the end of the eighties? I think people are just generally getting unhappy with the way that nothing is changing. Um, that, that's the thing that came out of most of my interviews was that people were saying they made all sorts of reasonable suggestions, reforming the political system, making it more democratic, um, opening the GDR up, uh, easing uh, restrictions in terms of traveling to the West, which had been happening step by step, but not fast enough. Um, you know, people wanted to see their relatives and they, they, they actively said, and this is still even once the walls open, people are like driving past the border guards saying, we, we will come back, stop worrying about it. This isn't the point. Um, so, you know, there was a there was a sort of expectation that the GDR would move into the modern age and Honecker isn't the man for that. I mean, you know, as you said, he, he was, yes, one generation on from, from Albrecht, but nonetheless, somebody who'd like gone through the, the you know 1920s and the 1930s and experienced all of that. He was a, a man who was very, very out of touch. He was also very ill and, and getting increasingly sort of frail physically and, and psychologically. And, and he really was like Albrecht before in 1953. And there is a connection here in that sense. 
unwilling to accept that change needed to happen. And, and most of the groups all the way into 1989 aren't asking for the GDR to be abolished or even for socialism to be abolished. They're asking for reform. Um, that includes the civil rights uh, groups, most of them as well, who um, were actually, once it becomes obvious that unification was on the cards, many of them are actually worried about what's going to happen to the things like, you know, like we were saying earlier about women's um, position in society and things like that. So you basically have a situation where it's not so much the actual conditions, it's more the fact that people can live with them for now if there's a sense that they are changing and they're not changing. And it's that obstinacy that most people get get very annoyed about. I spoke to one uh, guy who stood in the in the last um, municipal elections in 1989. They're quite famous or infamous for the uh, kind of outbreaks of dissent. And he stood in that election for the Liberal Party. And he said, you, you had to basically, you were set as a candidate. So people literally just ticked off the list of candidates and that was it by way of electing. So there was no way they could not have elected him. But what you had to do is you had to face the electorate beforehand and they were allowed to kind of voice concerns or say the things that they wanted you to change for them once you're in power. And he said it was so hostile. It was basically, you were stood there in front of a room of people and they were just saying, you know, what, what about um, like living conditions, housing, traveling to the West? Uh, people were concerned about the environment. That was a big thing that came out of the 1980s, particularly as East Germany was still burning a lot of coal um, because the Soviet unions had sort of reduced the, the gas and oil deliveries and, and so on and so forth. All of these things he was suddenly faced with. And he said, OK, I'll try and go and change it. But people were angry at that point And there wasn't really a way to go back unless things you know, were moving forward, which, which they weren't. That just underlines some of the great stories that you've got in this book. I mean, the, the interviews that you've done and the little stories, unknown stories, certainly stories I'd not heard, are great. One of them is uh, you have quite a bit of detail about Angela Merkel and her experiences and a sort of surreptitious trip across the border into Poland while solidarity is forming and great stuff like that. But my absolute highlight, of the book is a four-year-old Katya Hoya appears <laughs> in the narrative. Yes, I'm one of my own yeah. witnesses. <laughs> yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Now, what was your family's experience of East Germany? Were they uh, migrants from the Eastern Territories? You know, what what were they doing? What what was their life? What were their jobs? Well, my my family, I think, is pretty typical. If you had to like list all of the kind of characteristics of a typical East German family that, that we probably met them. Um, so three of my four grandparents were from those Eastern territories. So I've, uh, basically one of them, my, my grandfather came from East Prussia, the other one from the Sudetenland, and one of my grandmothers came from uh, Pomerania, so just over the border into what is now um, Poland. Um, and one was from Saxony and had sort of already lived there. But, you know, they they were part of that kind of huge group of people who traveled from the east and continued to talk about their experiences as well throughout the the time basically you know even to me they were they were still talking about what it was like to live say in east prussia for example um so that stayed with them through the whole time um uh, and they were like many people basically given opportunities to improve their lot um and therefore my my grandparent generation is is typical i think for that time as well in that they were grateful for those opportunities and lived sort of reasonably satisfied lives with it within the GDR without being overtly political. Um, so they were they were not uh, kind of socialist in an ideolo- ideological sense. 
but were happy that because they came with nothing um, and were, you know, given apprenticeships and things like that and, and could sort of start doing things that suited their skill sets. And their so, for instance, my grandmother from Pomerania um, wanted to, to become a shop assistant um, and was told that actually, um, you know, you're, you're quite bright and, and we need women in, in sort of other parts of society and, and, you know, was basically told to go to university and start studying um to become a to become a teacher um and she effectively then well not university there were teacher courses basically set up um and you end up with with um a generation which my grandparents belonged to which who were sort of reasonably satisfied with their lot and and were quite happy with things how things were going and worked hard and then kind of just lived their lives and my um parents my my dad um wanted to I think originally become a chemist or or study physics, one of the two, and was like all men told that yes, you can do that, but only if you go and sign up to become a an, an officer in the in the people's army first, because then you get better access to these places of study. Um, so he became an, an officer in the in the um, uh, air force of the of the people's um, army, um, and then stayed there because he quite enjoyed it, um, but also found it more and more. Um, difficult to live with the politics that came with that um, as, I, as I describe in the book as well um, and my mother became a teacher um, and effectively again you know was was kind of when she grew up with with her parents being both sort of working class people so they both worked in factories um, and she was again told you know you're quite bright um, do something different with your life and and against the wishes of her parents who saw that as some sort of you know, you want to better yourself and you want to move away from your heritage and what are you doing? This happened a lot. Uh, her teachers and her basically worked together to to make it happen against the fact that my grandparents weren't all that keen for her to go to university. How did your family fare in the, the vendor as far as ch- the changes there? And you cover this in the epilogue of the book. You know, you've got the Troy Hand who is selling off these factories and there's high unemployment in the the former east germany following reunification certainly in the the following years from then yeah um in that again they were i think pretty typical so my my dad had to leave the army because the bundeswehr were only taking like certain amounts of people over from east germany and usually not the officers and the higher ranks um due to the sort of fear of political politicization of of them um he was offered that he could have stayed, but with the caveat that he would have basically have been posted anywhere in in Germany, effectively. Um, you know, certainly quite a, of quite a long way away from where we lived, and feared that he'd have to unroot like his entire or uproot his entire you know family just to to stay maybe another two years or so, as a lot of people did. They were given sort of time contracts. Um, so he left um, and struggled quite a bit in the in the nineties to find jobs because again, you know, once the system had gone, if you were in any shape or form like part of that, and even if it is just within the army, which he was conscripted to to start with, um, it more or less, um, if basically you ended up having difficulties being employed afterwards, um, and you know, not least because so much industry was dismantled, so many of the companies that existed were just sold off and dismantled and taken to the to the west and you got huge unemployment um throughout the 90s and early 2000s in in east germany so he kind of just went from one job to the next or very precarious um employment 
and ended up working for a company that um, maintains like electronic gates. So like, you know, sort of automatic doors and things like that. And that's what he still does. He's effectively a, a white van man uh, driving around fixing things, which he loves. Um, but it's obviously a bit of a, a different thing to do compared to what, what he was used to doing. And uh, my mother had to retrain effectively. She had to go to university again, um, which was quite hard for her at the time. She had to continue to work had two small children at home, me and my sister, um, and was at the same time having to go to to uh, to university again to study and retrain effectively how to be a teacher, which she'd already been um, previously, which again, lots of people found very frustrating. I've talked to other people and they said they were just crying day in and day out because they'd done the same job for like 20 years and were suddenly told that's worth nothing. Um, and start again or do something else and, and ended up in, in kind of temporary work for for the rest of their working lives it must have been an exciting and exhilarating time but at the same time really a frightening time particularly for people of an older age who had all they'd ever known had been east germany and that almost like comfort blanket that they'd had yeah, and people tend to reduce that to the economic level. So they say things like, oh, you know, so and so much money has already been invested in, in East Germany and, and why are you not grateful and, and all the rest of it. Um, when actually, as you say, it's that psychological component as well, and particularly the devaluing of work, I think is something that people really struggle with. And this is, I think, again, this has really strong echoes now. So when you have kind of, you know, take take the luggage handler crisis at, at airports at the moment when you have people working for very little money, very hard work that they have to do um, and, and you don't get recognised for what you do. You simply, you're an asset, you're, you're a number on somebody's spreadsheet, an overhead uh, to a large company that doesn't even know you exist at the bottom end. And that just didn't exist in the GDR. You were part of like these work brigades, for example, that did like work together to achieve the targets. If you achieve the targets, you'd, you'd be recognized. There would be like celebrations. You got medals even for that kind of thing. You could be a hero of labor, you know, was one of the, one of the kind of recognitions that you got. And people were just used to the idea that their life was their, was their work. Like you would identify with your job. That was really a part of, of who you were. And that suddenly went. So even if you got a new job, um, it wasn't the same. You weren't part of kind of this really closely connected group of people anymore that you, after work, you'd, you'd sit and have a beer with or you even go on holiday with or whatever. People were very, very close with their work colleagues um, because it was seen as a like so collective thing to, to do. And yes, a lot of people were bored with their work as well, but nonetheless, it was safe. It was kind of if you were happy with your life, you were you were okay. Um, and that safety and security i think was something that was lost and also the sort of communal aspect of of life in the gdr and this it's very hard to explain to people who haven't lived with it and experienced it to to get that across without making a political point which i'm not so i'm, I'm you know trying to explain what what was lost to people without saying the gdr was the best place ever that that really isn't the point but it's it's trying to you know, understand what it was that made these people's lives what they were um, and what they then felt that they'd lost. And that wasn't going to be replaced by having a telephone in your house or, I don't know, having internet from the from the sort of, you know, mid-1990s onwards and then so on and so forth, because they are, they're two different things, basically rebuilding the country um, physically and trying to merge East and West German societies together. Yeah, and I think it's an important differentiator between the experience of the other countries of like Warsaw Pact countries, whereby 
Czechoslovakia, okay, for for a while, it remained as Czechoslovakia. It, it was no longer the Socialist Republic of Czechoslovakia. It was Czechoslovakia. Whereas with East Germany, the impression I get, some feel that they were subsumed or forced into having to be like West Germany. There wasn't, and and you know, there was a lot of talk at the time of unification. I remember of a third way between communism. Uh, capitalism of West Germany and another way of running the country. And I think you touched on that slightly with some of these um, civil rights groups being fearful of what would happen with reunification. Yeah, because the expectation in the negotiations, and this is openly said from the Western side, was that we have a system here, uh, we have a constitution, we have a, a market economy, and what we're negotiating about isn't merging those two together, but how we can integrate your system into ours, and it just becomes like a you know absorbing it basically into the system that already exists. There was absolutely no negotiation from the Western side on on how that could work, and whether there was maybe, as the SPD suggested, for example, in West Germany, whether there was a way to um, amalgamate the systems rather than just absorbing the GDR. I think it's also often a misreading of that election in 1990. So the first um, East German election that was free um, in 1990 came up with um, sort of majority for the parties, for the coalition of parties that suggested a really quick unification that was just absorbing East Germany into West Germany. But the problem is that basically politicians had promised a number of things, like Hall basically was saying that there will not be any unemployment and, you know, you can immediately have access to the welfare system if anything goes wrong and all the rest of it. And I think people had a very, very different idea in 1990 what was going to happen. And you can see that in, for instance, the turnout at the time. So the turnout was incredibly high in in East Germany to that election because people want to change. And then you see that drop throughout the 1990s. People get disaffected, they get angry because the stuff that they've been promised hadn't materialised. And this isn't about material safety alone. Um, and I can't stress that enough because that is always the comeback I get when I say things like that. You know, But there's unemployment benefits or this, that and the other. That isn't the point. People have lost what they felt to be the dignity of their, of their labour and their work to a system that they didn't understand before they entered it. They were sold West Germany as something that they saw on television in adverts and, you know, in the way that, that propaganda was bringing it into the East. And then the reality of it, which comes with risks and which comes with pitfalls, wasn't what people were expecting. And I think that is an issue that needed more communication and more work on that rather than kind of just get on with it. Um, it is what it is. You know, you lose your job, you lose that sense of identity. And I guess identity is is one of the other things here is you're suddenly the citizen of another country. The overwhelming thing that people were saying was, I believed in it, but I also saw that things needed to change, that it couldn't go on like that. That's the phrase that I hear a lot of people realize, even the ones that were really pro-GDR. Uh, that I because I didn't speak to politicians as much. The only politician I spoke to was uh, two actually, uh, Gregor Gysi and Egon Krenz. But by and large, I talked to kind of ordinary Germans who weren't like functionaries or, or party officials in the sense that they were like really invested in that particular system. But even those who were like vaguely, you know, pro-socialism, um, still said like they realized that things had come to a dead end and something needed to give. 
but they didn't agree with the way that kind of, you know, all of the, the kind of progress that have been made on a social basis. You know, take take um, like women in the army, for example, that, that that's something that had started in the GDR and then the Bundeswehr was by by its own constitution forbidden to have women in the army so they were all just sacked you know every, all the 2000 women that worked in the in the national people's army were literally just sacked without any kind of conversation about that what could have been done to to try and um find some sort of solution for that you know many that the childcare suddenly disintegrated and yes there was still more than in west germany but not to the to the level where everybody could just have a, a childcare place so many women ended up suddenly at home they were previously i don't know like a a, a chemist or a, I don't know lab technician or whatever they did and, and that was their identity as much as it was for the men and suddenly they end up at, being at home with two small children to look after and, and nothing else to do and they just don't get that lifestyle because they can't live it they don't want to live it and they they were very unhappy so female unemployment rises even more sharply as a you know as a statistic than general unemployment and all of these things I think people find difficult to get their heads around. The book is called Beyond the Wall, East Germany 1949 to 1990. It's by Katia Hoyer and is published by Alan Lane. There will be links in the episode notes. And if you buy the book on those links, you are helping to support Cold War conversations. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information